It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Kathy Loblaw. She is the president and CEO of Ronald McDonald House Charities Canada, and she's here to talk about Ronald McDonald uh, House Charities, as well as McHappy Day, which is Wednesday, September 22nd. And there are some special things happening this year. I believe, Kathy, if I'm not mistaken, it is the 40th year of the opening of the Toronto uh, uh, chapter. Absolutely. Well, the first Ronald McDonald House in Canada uh, opened in 1981 in Toronto. And today we have 33 Ronald McDonald houses and family rooms coast to coast right across the country. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being on the show to uh, talk to us about the wonderful success and the wonderful things that Ronald McDonald House Charities is doing for families across the country. Yes, it's, it's a very special charity. There's no question that um, none of us ever expects to have a sick child. Mm. Uh, but when we do, uh, a Ronald McDonald House provides a safe and caring and supportive place to stay uh, while your sick child's being treated at a nearby hospital. And, um, you know, on an average year, we support over 26,000 families right across the country. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into some of the details of that throughout our conversation and looking more closely within Ontario and breaking that down to where some of the uh, uh, locations are and uh, how that breaks down in terms of families that you're helping within these different areas of Ontario as well. But before we get there, do you mind, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's been 40 years since the, the Toronto chapter opened. Can you tell us something about the Ronald McDonald House Charities idea? How did it come about? Well, I think it's a really special story of community caring and a corporation, in this case, obviously, McDonald, mm. who wanted to make a difference in a local community. And so the first house uh, opened in Philadelphia in the U.S. And then over the years, it has grown to be, you know, an international charity mm. um, in countries right around the world. And, um, you know, Canada was the, the next country that, that opened um, after the first house uh, in 1974 in Philadelphia. So uh, since 1981, uh, we're really pleased to have been able to have grown the mission across the country and just had a community response, quite frankly, of yeah. our local McDonald's franchisees and guests and crew really working together to ensure that families who had a sick child and had to travel to one of Canada's 16 specialty hospitals um, had somewhere to stay and support them on what is always, you know, a difficult and unexpected journey. Mm. Now, I understand this year, uh, it's a little different, if I'm not mistaken. The full menu is going to be available to help support families uh, with every purchase. Yes, we're really excited that, um, you know, McHappy Day is back and that, you know, we can come together with our communities and restaurants across the country to enable support for our families with sick children and and local communities and uh, as you said this year every menu item sold all day uh, will contribute to supporting Ronald McDonald houses and families with the sick children and our local communities and we're really excited not only by that but also by um, some of the fundraising efforts that will be happening with that including uh, being able to purchase McHappy Day hearts for two dollars 
And uh, with each heart, um, you will, as a, as a contributor and a guest, um, receive a special message from one of our alumni families or possibly a Canadian athlete or celebrity, just a, a special way of bringing the mission to life. And uh, of course, everyone really enjoys our McHappy Day socks. They're always a iconic way to celebrate the day and support families from your community. And uh, uh, the socks are $5 mm. and uh, will continue to support throughout the day as well. Right. Now, I, I noticed, of course, the the focus, of course, is that the donations go mainly towards the Ronald McDonald House charities to help families. But I, I see that it also, you also, uh, I guess, a, some portion of that goes to other charities, children's charities. Absolutely. You know, part of being a Canadian tradition and a community day is supporting the local community, inclusive of Ronald McDonald Houses and families with sick children, but also other local children's charities. So when we look at 2019, we were so pleased that McHappy Day was able to raise $6.6 million mm. in just the one day. Mm. And uh, $3.5 million supported Ronald McDonald Houses um, and our families across the country. And then the balance supported local children's charities and community charities uh, in communities across the country. Wow. That's that's quite significant. Congratulations to uh, to the uh, charities for, for doing that uh, through the purchases and, and congratulations to everyone that made a donation and bought something, I guess, that day as well. Um, and that can now uh, uh, perhaps be uh, superseded with uh, this event coming up on, uh, on the 22nd of Wednesday, September 22nd. That is uh, that is make happy day so people can get out there and uh, make those purchases and, and help uh, other families uh, right across the country country. Now, I also see that, um, you know, you're supporting, you've supported more than 425,000 families across Canada mm-hmm. and giving them a place to stay. Uh, you know, we, I think we've all seen the commercials on television um, that try to, uh, and do a very good job actually of, of uh, uh, bringing families, showing what families are, are doing inside of uh, the Ronald McDonald home, where it actually, you have the families not only giving them a place to stay, but a place to prepare their meals and really make it feel like like home for them. Yeah, there's no question, you know, a Ronald McDonald house is really your home away from home during an unexpected and difficult time. Mm. And uh, inside the beautiful walls of our houses and family rooms, there's kitchens, so families can cook a home-cooked dinner, and mm. many nights there's volunteers preparing meals. Mm. Uh, there's a movie theater if, you know, you're there for an extended stay. Depending on the house, if you look at Toronto, for example, the average length of stay is 30 days. Wow. Um, and more than half our families are with us multiple times throughout the year. So mm. it does become your home. Um, mm. So whether you just need to take a pause and watch a movie, um, there's beautiful laundry rooms, family rooms. Uh, the bedrooms are designed to really be a quiet oasis of rest and sleep. And all of this is either right inside the hospital or just steps to the hospital. So it really enables families to stay together, Mm. uh, stay close to each other, um, and also to the close to the health care that their child needs. Because, you know, across Canada, we only have 16 amazing uh, pediatric children's specialty hospitals. Mm. And so, you know, for 65% of Canadians, if your child is sick, you will have to travel because yeah. uh, you don't have, you know, a children's hospital directly in your community. So the houses are really, we often think of them as family wellness centers, you know, a place to 
recoup and rest, support your child um, and stay together. Mm. You know, I think one of the, the magic parts of the house is you can have your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your sibling, you know, the families are all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes the healing experience and the healing journey uh, so much easier. I can well imagine that it would also be so much more comforting for uh, a family to know that they aren't in something like a large hotel or a motel or something where there's other people milling, milling around going about their business, you know, as they would be. And uh, they're able to have this much more intimate surrounding and setting for themselves. Yeah, there's no question, you know, when when think of when your child, you know, scrapes their knee, how much you want to be close and near to them and you want to be in a setting that um, allows you um, to be close. And there's the cost, you know, when sure. you think of um, what it costs to live in another city, to leave your job, to leave, you know, extended family and community and um, be there with your child, you know, and depending on the community, it, it can cost up to $38,000 a mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. for a family of four or five um, to be away for 30 days uh, twice a year. And many of our families are away for much longer than 30 mm-hmm. days yeah. and um, more than twice a year. So, you know, we are so pleased to not a like not only be able to support families emotionally Mm -hmm. um, and physically by being close, but also financially, you know, over in one year, uh, we will save Canadian families more than $48 million um, in out-of-pocket expenses that Mm -hmm. they would have had to spend on lodging or food. You know, other essentials um, that just go with being far from home. Yeah. You know, uh, I I was quite surprised to see this uh, one number in here uh, from the information I was provided that one in four Canadians has either stayed at a Ronald McDonald uh, House uh, Charities home or knows someone who has. Uh, That's quite a large number, I think. Yeah, it's remarkable that over the 40 years that we've been in Canada, um, today, as you said, one in four Canadians know someone or who has stayed with us. And I think it just speaks to how many of us have an experience with a sick child uh, that we're not anticipating. But when we do, we're so grateful that McDonald's and the Ronald McDonald House are there to support us um, and give us a place to get through that journey a little bit easier. Um, And, you know, I think the gift today that we see is now more than ever, thanks to medical advances, uh, children are healing mm. and children are getting better, which is the best news and what we're all mm-hmm. hoping for. But the reality is that healing journey takes more treatments over longer periods of time than it ever did. Mm. And often children have comorbidities that you know emerge with the process and the journey. And so we have many cases where families are in and out of the Ronald McDonald House for the duration of their child's, um, you know, pediatric life cycle. And uh, it's just incredibly important and incredibly wonderful of Canadians uh, to join in supporting us. And, you know, by visiting McCaffey Day on the 22nd, as you said, it's a really powerful way uh, to make a small difference that collectively makes a huge difference mm. for 
the families. Yeah. Uh, now, this is maybe slightly off topic, but it's related. Uh, I'm just wondering about the process by which someone goes uh, about to uh, apply to stay at a, at a Ronald McDonald house. Mm-hmm. The way that um, a family comes to stay with us is they are referred through their children's hospital. So the only criteria is distance. You know, we try to support the families from the farthest distance. Right. Um, so each house has slightly different criteria depending on sort of the structure, the, the geographic structure of their province. Mm. Um, but it could be 60 minutes away, 60 or 50 kilometers away. Um, but distance is our single criteria. Right. And then other than that, uh, the hospital refers the family to Ronald McDonald House and then they call and if we have space, we lovingly welcome them and, and try to support them as best we can. If we don't, um, then we have families on a wait list yeah. and we try and move them in um, and meet their need as right. quickly as we can. And how many families would a Ronald McDonald house hold at any one time? Well, it varies. Mm-hmm. So um, if we look in Ottawa, for example, the Ronald McDonald house in Ottawa uh, has 14 families every night. Wow. Uh, the Ronald McDonald House in Vancouver um, has uh, 73 families each night. Jeez. Toronto has 81 families. Uh, Montreal uh, has 40 families. So it ranges. Um, I would say the average, if we look at London and Hamilton, um, you know, 35, 40 families each night in our homes. Wow, that that's a greater number than I thought you were going to uh, say there. Um, that that again is is uh, something to consider, especially uh, in this time. Uh, and and obviously that shows the need. It definitely yeah, shows the need. It's it's always um, grounding to know that each night we have over five hundred families with us. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and still the need continues. Um, unfortunately. You know, in an average year now, we're turning away over 3,000 families each year. Hmm. So, you know, one of the things that McHappy Day does is it supports our continuing operations so that we can be there for families with uh, the capacity that we have. But we're also looking to grow that capacity in the years ahead uh, so that we can serve even more families. Hmm. So approximately, I mean, is the idea that 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 McDonald's would like to expand this to the point where there would be a home in every city, let's say? Yes, we currently have a Ronald McDonald house um, in in every province uh, across the country and aligned with each of the children's hospitals. Mm. So that's really what determines the footprint is proximity to the children's hospitals. We have 16 children's hospitals across the country. Yes. And so the expansion is likely to be more capacity in yes. bedrooms in yes. those locations. Um, and so, as I said, right now we have 539 bedrooms mm-hmm. uh, between our houses and our family rooms, as we call them, which are actually right inside the hospital. Mm. And, uh, you know, we are looking to, to grow that um, over the next, you know, five to seven years um, so that we can serve even more families and bring that wait list down or gone would be the dream that no family would ever be turned away. Right. And thank you for pointing out that about the family rooms versus the houses. Uh, And uh, so the family rooms are in the hospitals. Can you describe the differences between the two then? 
Absolutely. So a house is, as you would expect, a freestanding house. Mm -hmm. It just happens to have anywhere from 35 to 81 bedrooms. And as I said, kitchens, family rooms, um, all the things you would find in a home that that make it supportive. A family room is um, located right inside the hospital. So it's almost like a mini house, Mm. but it's inside the hospital. Mm. So uh, each family room is slightly different because it depends on the hospital availability of space and design. Um, But, you know, they're a beautiful space where you may be walking to see your child and you'll look at the end of the hall and you may see a big red door or you may see a door that says Ronald McDonald House Family Room and you'll ring the doorbell and you'll step inside and it's just a beautiful space where you know you get to step away from the beeps and the lights of the hospital Mm -hmm. but you're only a few steps Mm -hmm. and you're in the same building as your child and uh, they have sleep rooms they have um, kitchens Um, i always often think of windsor where we have a screened in porch we have living rooms laundry um, they really vary anywhere from a thousand square feet to five thousand square feet, depending on the space that's available. And they really give families an opportunity, um, you know, during particularly difficult times or when your journey is continuing for an extended period of time to go in and do a load of laundry, have a cup of tea, take a nap. You know, just getting the rest you need without feeling that you're truly leaving um, your child. And uh, they're beautiful spaces. Mm. It, it sounds like uh, a wonderful uh, sort of little re- retreat for, for people to go to, to get away, like, as you say, from the hustle and bustle and the, the noises in the hospital and, and be with their own thoughts and be with their family. Uh, it's a wonderful concept. And uh, it, it's it's just this, this wonderful idea that's, that's grown. And again, I know you described how the first one started in 1974 in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, it would have been wonderful to to hear that initial conversation around the concept, you know, about the idea of 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 how that came to fruition. You know, the the actual seed that grew to say, hey, guys, I have this idea. What do you think? You know, well, you know, like many things, there are so many heroes and partners that Mm. birthed the ideas, you say. But Dr. Audrey Evans, who Mm. was um, the head of the Philadelphia Children's Hospital Mm. and a very special woman, uh, still with us today in her early 90s and as dedicated and engaged as ever. She um, was treating uh, a family. Um, Kim Hill was a a young girl who, um, at the age of three, developed leukemia. Mm. Her father, Fred Hill, uh, played for the Philadelphia Eagles, Mm. and um, Fred and Fran had four children, and and Kim was their youngest. And as they were on their journey uh, of healing their sick child, they really noticed how many families were eating out of vending machines and sleeping in Mm. hospital chairs and in their cars and just how difficult it can be to stay close to your child during this. And so as Kim got better... They talked to Dr. Evans and said, you know, how do we pay it forward and how do we help families um, make this journey easier? And it was Dr. Evans who said, you know, medically, we are figuring it out. You know, medical advances and research are greater than ever before. But what I really see is what these families need is what these sick children need are their families. They want to have their brother and sister and mom and dad, you know, aunts and uncles close and nearby. And I have a dream. 
mm. that there would be a Ronald, there'd be a house for families with sick children. Mm. And so from there, uh, Fred Hill and Dr. Evans spoke with their local McDonald's owner operator and talked about the need of building a house in the community that could support families. And that was the first Ronald McDonald house. And from that, uh, we have grown, I think we're in 85 countries around the world today. And um, it has become, you know, a, a core part of how pediatric health care is delivered, not only in Canada, uh, but in many, many countries around the world. And I often think it's a beautiful example of how, you know, one person and one company and, you know, a caring group can come together to create something uh, that now supports families with sick children in Canada each and every day. And our franchisees and uh, across the country in Canada, you know, hold that same commitment of community and caring um, and support today. And that's why we've been able to grow to where we are today and, and support 500 families, you know, a night here in Canada. Thank you so much for sharing that. I was not aware of that story. And if I was, I'd forgotten it. So I really am, am glad that you refreshed my memory and uh, shared that for other people to hear as well. What a, a wonderful and encouraging story. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Kathy Loblaw. She's the president and CEO of the Ronald McDonald House Charities of Canada. We're talking about McHappy Day and uh, the wonderful things that... Uh, that has produced over the years to help families uh, with sick children across the country and around the world. And it is coming up on Wednesday, September 22nd. That day is when you make a purchase for any item on the McDonald's menu. It goes to help families with sick children and local children's charities. And um, so it's, it's, you know, get out there and do that. Now, I also noticed that, uh, Kathy, maybe you want to expand on this a little bit, although it doesn't take much expansion because if people cannot get to a McDonald's, McDonald's. Well, there's other ways for them to also donate that day, isn't there? Absolutely. So on Wednesday, you know, you can participate at your McDonald's drive-through um, this year, and you know, every year now, you can have McHappy Day right in your own home by using McDonald's delivery uh, through Skip the Dishes and Uber mm. Eats and DoorDash. Um, you can have a McHappy Day celebration with your family, and of course, you can always use the McDonald's app. Um, and then if you're not able to be with us um, on Wednesday, September 22nd, uh, you can always uh, make a contribution to your local Ronald McDonald House either directly or through rmhc.ca. Um, and as well, you can round up your order. We're so excited that across Canada each and every day, mm -hmm. uh, you can round up your order to the nearest dollar and uh, those funds go directly to the local Ronald McDonald House or family room in your area um, and are just another way of supporting families. And, you know, we're a beautiful country of, of caring Canadians who really do care about our neighbours and our families and uh, having McDonald's be a partner in enabling that caring and, and helping us to bring this support to families is, is really special. And mm. we hope you'll be with us on McHappy Day and whatever day way works for you, whether <laughs> that's drive through or delivery or the mm. app. But uh, if not, as you said, please visit us during the year at any of your favorite and right. local McDonald's restaurant right. and uh, round up your order. That's a wonderful way to make a donation as well. 
And I just want to clarify what you just said there. This, so this is yeah. year round. If you round up your order to the nearest dollar, whatever that roundup is over and above your purchase, that mm-hmm. goes directly to the Ronald McDonald uh, House uh, Charities. It does. Wow. It does. It's a really special program um, that's been running for about a year now. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is, is ask your wonderful uh, McDonald's crew to please round up your order. And uh, it'll automatically be done, and the funds will support your local house and families from your community. Mm, wonderful. Now, uh, you did talk a little bit about some of the locations of the Ronald McDonald uh, houses and uh, also the family rooms, which, uh, as you said, the, the whole idea of these, uh, of these houses are to help uh, children in pediatric care, and that means they are located in the locations where there are pediatric hospitals. And, and so when we break that down, there's, there's, uh, there's one in Toronto, there's one in Ottawa, and now south-central Ontario, one record mcdonald house and the two ronald mcdonald family homes in the hamilton area yes so we have a ronald mcdonald house in toronto Mm -hmm. hamilton london ontario um, and ottawa Mm -hmm. and then as well we have two family rooms um, in ottawa at the chio hospital we also have a family room at sick kids hospital Mm -hmm. in uh, in toronto Mm -hmm. and then we have a family room um, in london as well as well as um, in, where did I miss? London, Toronto, Hamilton, and Ottawa. So they all have family rooms at their partner hospitals as well. And then we're also, of course, in Windsor. Mm. We have a house in a hospital in Windsor, which is our first and only in Canada. Right. And so the idea is that, as you pointed out, because I was not aware of this um, off the top, is that is that these homes are located where there are uh, pediatric care hospitals. And so mm-hmm. expansion, as you pointed out earlier, any expansion that would take place, which is always going on and I, I guess is being looked at because the need is there, as you pointed out, um, would be to expand in the areas where these pediatric hospitals are, should another pediatric pediatric hospital open up somewhere, then of course, I guess you would also look at those locations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's expanding a house from, you know, when I think of London, for example, that was a 17 bedroom house. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, we expanded it to 35 bedrooms, Mm. Um, you know, and right now we're in process in Winnipeg, our house in Manitoba um, is expanding and uh, is growing wonderfully from its 14 bedrooms to it will soon be 40 bedrooms. And um, our house in Halifax that serves uh, families in Atlantic Canada will also be growing to 36 bedrooms. So we have two houses actively expanding right now. um, And each year, uh, you know, a different house is fundraising and looking to expand so that we can meet that need. You know, what's a bit remarkable to know in Canada is that You know, each year, um, and it's been relatively stable for the last 10 years, um, 1.2 million families um, will have a sick child uh, that um, needs to use the hospital as either an inpatient or an outpatient. And um, within that, uh, there's 55,000 families each year who have to travel um, a significant distance to get the health care they need. So, you know, more than 100 kilometers. And uh, as we mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, we are serving about 20% of those families right now. 
And so there is a significant need, not only in our wait list that we track year over year and Mm. shows us, unfortunately, you know, over 3,000 families that we are saying no to, um, but there's a need beyond that as well, because, of course, once our houses are full, um, often the hospitals stop referring. And uh, so we know that that is understated mm-hmm. and, you know, we're committed to, to wanting to grow and um, be there for even more families in the years ahead. All right, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about McHappy Day, which is coming up on Wednesday, September 22nd. And as we pointed out earlier, this year, Every purchase across the full McDonald's menu goes to support families with sick children and local children's charities. So get out there on Wednesday, September 22nd and do what you can. If you can't, you've heard all the other ways you can contribute. Kathy Lobley is the president and CEO of the Ronald McDonald House Charities in Canada. And it's been my pleasure speaking with her today on this topic. Kathy, thank you once again for joining us. David, thank you. Very grateful. And happy McHappy Day. All right. Thank you. Same to you. And that is this portion of the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show the publisher and editor-in-chief of Canada Land, Jess, Jess Brown. And he's here to talk about The White Saviors. It is a five-episode series, and it drops weekly Mondays until September 20th, which you can get to hear on the White Saviors website. Um, you can also go to Canada Land to find it there as well. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Good to be here. It's, uh, sorry for the car alarm I can hear going off in the background on my end. Yeah, no worries. I guess that's uh, it's part and parcel of our, our new way of life of doing things uh, in, in the Zoom world, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like there's just uh, all kinds of technical Zoom trouble all the time, but good to be good to be talking with you nonetheless. Well, you know, just to, just on an aside there, um, maybe we got a little too comfortable with with uh, having pristine audio and doing things that were absolutely perfect, you know that we're, we're we're you know this is this is still great audio, still being able to communicate uh, in different parts of the country or around the world via Zoom and and do these wonderful things that uh, we never took advantage of prior to COVID nineteen, and uh, it certainly has become a way of of doing things now. Yeah, I don't mind a little a little hair in the lens, a little bit of reality or somebody's <laughs> kid busting in, in the back of the frame, you know, it yeah. keeps things real. That's right. That's right. Anyway, uh, keeping, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the show to talk about uh, the White Saviors, this, uh, this series that uh, is part of Canada Land that you guys have uh, going on, as I say, uh, up until September 20th. And I guess so once it's, once they finish the new series airing, uh, they're going to be uh, up on the website or uh, on the site that people can go and listen to on the podcast uh, at their leisure. Yeah, I mean, the way it goes with these limited series podcasts, people uh, seem to find them and discover them. And sometimes you get, you know, the, the traffic just continues for months and right. months and years. And uh, so it, it will live forever. Uh, you know, if you just search for White Saviors, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find it. Yeah. Now, this White Saviors uh, podcast that we're talking about, it's an original series based on five years of investigation 
uh, on the WE organization. And of course, the WE organization, as we know, Craig uh, and uh, and his brother Mark uh, Kielberger, who, who started this in Canada, and it be- became this worldwide uh, sensation. And of course, it fell under the uh, critical light. And uh, you guys have done this really amazing uh, job of looking at its life, how it grew out of the two brothers and the original idea behind it, uh, starting when they were very young. And, you know, I went, I listened to the first series, uh, the first episode, and I have to tell you that I forgot really about how wonderful it, it was of an idea and and the idea of 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 the presentation of this young 13-year-old reminding me very much uh, uh, of Greta Thunberg in some ways, you know, and what she has brought forward about the climate change. So um, it, it was really interesting to hear all of that. But, you know, you guys set up this really fascinating story that uh, takes us into the life of this organization. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say it. I mean, I think the Canadians, you know, sort of overdosed on we coverage last summer when it just sort of became this uh, procedural political story. What 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 we saw, and the reason why we wanted to come back to it and really just tell the whole thing from the beginning is that we see an astonishing story of grand epic themes. Uh, You know, I think that Greta Thunberg is a good example. You know, imagine if Greta Thunberg, this child who who rose to international fame and prominence on a cause that is so urgent and so just. Mm -hmm. Imagine if 10, 20 years from now she was working with Shell Oil. You know, uh, what what happened along the way uh, to cause that um, that arc in her story? That's pretty much the story of Craig Kilberger. You know, when he was 12 and um, burst onto the scene and was was celebrated by Oprah and 60 Minutes and met with the Pope and the Queen. It was uh, based on this amazing cause to, to rid the world of child slavery which, you know, who could argue with that? Yep. And then you look forward 20 years later and he's working with Hershey and Unilever. He's working with companies. He's partnered with companies that use child labor mm-hmm. on an industrial scale. So what happened over those 20 years? And and that that's the story of the White Sabres. And the celebrity side of things, that whole idea of how it captured so many uh, of the youth uh, across the country and around the world, uh, in, you know, North America, at least anyway, to try and get kids on this, uh, this wonderful idea to help others and and. And, and you know, Craig was such a great front person, even at a young age, he spoke so well. He did. And, and one thing, you know, we just spent so much time uh, going through the footage over the years. Mm. It was really interesting to watch how he adapted and massaged uh, his message mm. and how the rough corners and, you know, to 12 year old Craig was an incredibly gifted orator, mm-hmm. but like any activist, he was angry. He was angry about the injustices in the world. He was calling out companies that exploit child labor. Mm. Anger doesn't sell that well. You know, there's a certain percentage Mm -hmm. of young people who are willing to get angry about a cause. But there are far more young people who want to be inspired or want to be uh, flattered, told Mm. that they are the change makers. They Mm. are the best people in the world doing the best work of the world. And over the years, the we message you know, it broadened. It was not about child labor exclusively. It just, you know, until you get to a point where a few years ago, the we message, it's hard to even tell what it was about. It was, you know, 
you can change the world, believe in yourself, mm-hmm. stand up for what you believe in. And it all sounded really inspirational, especially if you're, you know, vulnerable, you're 10 years old and you're in a stadium and celebrities yeah. are singing and shouting these things towards you and, and telling you these amazing things. But what did it actually mean? You know, uh, what were you trying to change? Right. And certainly there was no expectation that anyone should get angry or show up at a protest or boycott a product. You know, it became about download our app mm. or like us on Facebook. Right. Um, you know, their, their slogan became, we make doing good doable. So the right. ease of activism became, they don't even like the word activism in recent years. You know, it became, uh, you know, change making, mm. uh, you know, so, so you see this kind of like broad commercialization of activism and philanthropy and virtue. Yeah. I remember actually my own son went to one of those events in uh, Toronto and uh, talking about it. And that's when I first became aware of it uh, because of of his involvement. And I believe he got involved with their organization at his school when he, uh, he was younger as well. There was something else, though, through that first episode. It was talking about one of the young people that did get involved in their school. Uh, because they were wanting to do something, and 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 this was very uh, a very prominent organization at their school, and wanting to sell some of the products, but the organization was asking them to purchase the items first, and then uh, sell them back or something. It was co- it was complicated, and it triggered something because I, I can't remember if my son got involved with that, and 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 it kind of made me think: Do I remember something like that as well? And asking questions, this seems kind of odd. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pippa Biddle is the um, is the person you're referring to. She's mm. very courageous, I think. Um, you know, a hard thing to talk about is when people, uh, you know, try to be honest yeah. about their own. You know, she's honest about like what was attracting her to this. Yep. And, you know, she was celebrated as a young person, like, oh, you're such a great young person. You're dedicating so much time to philanthropy. Mm. And she looks back on it. And she says, I became really addicted to the kind of validation I got of grownups telling me that I was this wonderful person. And she went on a number of volunteerism trips with a different organization. And she says, you know, everybody from her private school wanted a picture with a, a poor black orphan to put on their social media accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they became, she, as she describes it, addicted to the, uh, the advertisement of their own virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very mm-hmm. complicated uh, sure. idea. And it's, it's very, I think, courageous of her to explore that and share that but it's certainly not something that you can expect 12 year olds and 11 year olds to really understand. And she talks about how, when she was young, yes, uh, the scheme through which she was doing, you know, philanthropy Mm. in this extracurricular club in her private school was asked to buy bracelets from a private company owned by the Kilbergers called, called me to we, and then sell them to her classmates and, and teachers and parents, and then send the proceeds to a charity. Yes. Um, And, you know, what exactly was happening in in these exchanges, the movement of money from private to public organization, uh, you're dealing with vulnerable people who, you know, she she says that, you know, uh, looking back on the trips that people went on, these these Mm. these volunteerism trips. She did she no comprehension at that age that this was a travel agency privately owned by the Kilbergers. So, you know, the, the idea that it could be a private company, a for-profit company selling these charity trips um, was not something she understood as mm. a kid. And and that's something that we found with, we, you know, we interviewed dozens of people yeah. in our investigation of this organization. And, and you know, the, the kids just felt like 
this is charity work. It's yeah. all charity work. And they're, they're kind of told that because they're told that even when it's a for-profit company, yeah. it's pretty much charity anyhow, because the money ends up back in the charity. And it, 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 there's a great deal of, of, of confusion and misunderstanding about what was actually going on. How, how soon into the research that you were doing were flags going off for you? Well, the story of our involvement in this is we kind of came into it uh, backwards, sort of by accident. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was covering the media and I was covering the CBC mm-hmm. and um, it came to my attention that the CBC had been promoting a documentary about volunteerism, you know, these, these okay. trips that young people yep. take that are like half vacation and half helping uh, right. people in, in developing countries. And um, CBC had been promoting a documentary called Volunteer volunteers uh unleashed okay and and then at the last minute it got pulled from broadcast and i investigated and i found out that what happened was the we organization learned that they were criticized in this documentary and so they complained to the cbc and i think they made legal threats and the 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 cbc capitulated and not only removed the the, the documentary that night from their schedule, but actually censored and edited this documentary and rebroadcast it with all criticism removed and explicitly stating that there was nothing negative to say about me to we. Um, when we reported that story, we started getting tips. Um, people who had worked for the WE organization were not used to reading anything critical about WE. I mean, right. WE was partnered up with the Globe and Mail. They were partnered up with Post Media. They had media partners protecting them. And so once these former WE employees saw that Canada Land was willing to uh, turn a critical lens uh, and, and scrutinize this organization, they started to tell us, you don't know, you don't know the half of what's going on mm. within this organization. And they started to tell us more and more. Mm. And that's when I said, okay, we're on to something here. And I assigned a reporter named Jaron Jaron Kerr um, to just really dig into this. And he spent a long time uh, investigating and publishing these incredible um, revelations, these exposés. And, and, you know, that's sort of how we came to, uh, I think, lead. You know, we were the only voices on this for for years. And then all of a sudden it was this national scandal. Right. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Canada Land, Jesse Brown. And it's a pleasure to have him on talking about the White Saviors. It's a, a five-episode series podcast that uh, drops weekly. And it is uh, up until September 20th when the new episodes will be airing. Uh, if you can find that on a Canada Land uh, podcast as well as on the White Saviors uh, w- website as well. Now, uh, Jesse, you just mentioned there a moment ago about um, the CBC and the MeToo and how uh, they uh, brought charges against uh, the CBC. And that is something that comes up in the first episode. And, and I think, uh, as it points out in that episode, this is something that really shaped how the media approached the WE organization for years. Basically what happened was uh, over 20 years ago, the first magazine to ever take a critical, you know, really like dig into um, this phenomenon was a magazine called Saturday Night. It doesn't exist anymore. Yes. Um, But, you know, there was a feature written um, in Saturday Night magazine. It wasn't even that critical, but it was, it was definitely asking some tough questions Mm -hmm. about this, uh, this phenomenon. And they sued that, that, that's when the WE organization sued uh, at the time it was called for yes. the children. Thank you. Yeah. And they, they sued Saturday Night Magazine. They did not win. Like a, what usually happens with defamation uh, suits is that there was a settlement. Yes. Um, but they, they, 
declared victory and they yeah. said, you know, this magazine was out to get us and uh, we have triumphed and we are vindicated and this proves that they were lying. Yes. And what happened after that is that um, the media kind of just reported that story uncritically that, you know, they had won, mm. they declared victory. And after that, there's kind of like a, a 20 year silence on anyone yeah. saying anything critical about them. And in fact, as I mentioned, media organization after media organization joins forces with we to the extent where you actually have like a section of the newspaper. The Globe and Mail was running a we day section post media. The biggest newspaper chain in Canada had a, a regular column for years written by the Kilburn. So they were embraced by the Canadian establishment, including the media. Uh, the CBC never faced charges, but the CBC was threatened yeah. um, with this volunteers um, unleashed documentary. And that's what sort of led to our reporting. So how, how has that been for you guys then uh, working through this series with uh, on me to we? Well, it's, it, it, you know, we faced, uh, you know, a constant battle mm. in our original reporting where they, they came at us with, with uh, libel notices and threats from five different lawyers from different law firms. Um, also covert tactics. They hired private investigators to spy on me and my family and my reporter, all kinds of stuff. They, they, they hired a, a Republican strategy firm to plant negative stories about Canada. And there's a whole other podcast we could do <laughs> about everything they did to try to block us right. in this most recent chapter when our trailer, only the trailer had come out for yes. the White Saviors, they sent us a libel notice saying, we suspect that you're about to libel us and we demand that you suspend publication. Hmm. Well, we went ahead with publication. Hmm. Um, a lot of people say, how's the lawsuit going? <laughs> Just to clarify that, a libel notice is not a lawsuit. Right. It is the precursor to a lawsuit. Hmm. Often it's followed by a lawsuit and maybe we will be sued by the way organization but that would mean disclosing in public courts a lot of internal documents on their part. Mm. What I can tell you right now is we have not been sued mm. uh, at this point by the WE organization. Right. Um, now, the other thing uh, that we learn through that first episode is we get this set up and we do go back and, and it is fascinating, as I said, to go back and, and have that refreshed in our mind about uh, Craig and and what he was hoping to do as he started out and why and, and that whole story around the young boy that is around the same age that is assassinated but as we get into it we find out more about his brother's involvement and and Mark and his his uh, going to school I believe he comes back from Harvard as a lawyer uh, and then things uh, start to change and and it really does shape and, and create a fascinating look at their lives and, and how that um, forged uh, the forward movement and, and how this would then shape and, and what they did with uh, breaking things out from the nonprofit to the profit. And yeah, you know, I, I think that there's like a very specific story about individuals here, brothers, about yeah. a family and yeah. how what they set out to do is so different than what they ended up doing. And, you know, uh, they, they became wildly wealthy through yes. uh, the years that this family was running this organization. There's also a broader story about, uh, I think, you know, in recent years, corporations have gotten involved in philanthropy in a whole new way that has a lot more to do with uh, what's called corporate social responsibility, mm. where, you know, companies are tired of looking like the bad guy and companies, you know, they take on causes and that creates a market for, you know, charities that are really providing 
reputational services for large corporations. And some of these corporations are involved in really extractive negative behavior around the world. But uh, the, the, the amount of money that's at play here um, has kind of made charity serve corporations. And when, when you, you know, the, the Kilbergers very uh, brazenly and openly blurred the profit motive, um, mm. you know, commercialization and, and corporatization with charity. Mm. And when you put those things together, you know, capitalism wins. It's not like the, the companies become charities, but right. it does seem like the charities can become companies. Yeah. And of course, that's just one of the things you talk about. It makes me think about how this has perhaps damaged the the, the minds of young people or the people that were involved with uh, the the Me to We and uh, Free the Children uh, that that then say, what did we really? What were we really a part of? Uh, you know, is it worth looking at non uh, not for profits? And is it worth getting involved to to be philanthropic for these kind of efforts? Yeah, you know, David, some people came at us and said, you know, oh, wow, what you're doing is so negative because now no one's going to give money to charity. Mm. And um, other people came to us and said, you know what, the problems that you're describing, there are very similar problems at other charities you need to keep investigating. And, you know, I I take a nuanced view, I think, of these things. You know, I think the charity can be wonderful and I think there are charities that do great work. Mm -hmm. I also think we need to look in the mirror when it comes to um, fashionable causes and, you know, we're just starting to come to terms with some of the some of the mentality around this where Canadians like to be seen as, as, as saviors and heroes for people around the world. Meanwhile, here in our own country, there are people who don't have drinkable water yep. and there's and there's a systemic injustice in our own country. Yep. There are wonderful organizations that are worth people's donations and volunteer work. Um, But there is, I think, a responsibility to do our diligence and to really look closely at who we're involving ourselves with. Um, Because that, that good impulse people have to make a positive contribution, it can be manipulated. Right. Of course. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you you found a wonderful narrator and uh, he sets up the story about his own life and where he is from and also about uh, the charities that come into his country. And uh, and he does describe about the fact that there are some charities that are there and they do great work and they are helping. And then there are other organizations that are there for adventure and some that are there for profit. Uh, and so the, the monies that are donated don't get to the country and don't get to the people that that are there to benefit. Olushola Ariogan is the narrator of the yes. White Saviors, and yes. first of all, he's just a delight to listen to. His mm-hmm. voice is is um, is gorgeous, and he's uh, you know just somebody who works in, in audio. I, I'm lucky to work with him mm-hmm. um, as somebody who I think you know, and I hope we'll be hearing a lot more from him right. on other podcasts and you know all other kinds of voice work because mm-hmm. he really just lifts the words from the page. Yes, he does. And he also is somebody who as a Nigerian has a personal connection to the material. He had, has worked at an NGO in the past. He, he has a nuanced view of this. He sees that, that this can be uh, beneficial, but he has a broader social understanding of the dynamics um, throughout Africa um, as to how, uh, you know, there are corrupt governments, yeah. there are um, NGOs that are not there with the best wishes, and there's a widespread misconception that Africa is poor. Africa is incredibly rich. It has rich resources. Mm. It has, all, all, you know, uh, cultural and human resources, and it has... Uh, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't be attracting all this attention in the interests of China. Uh, you know, it, it, what he sees happening is um, what we describe in the show, which is that, um, you know, services like education and health 
that in many cases, you know, Kenyans are very capable of providing for themselves or mm. services like manual labor. The idea that what Kenya needs is for high school students from North American private schools to come and dig ditches. That's not what Kenya needs. And when you have a situation where there are literally thousands of these NGOs operating you know, yeah. out of Nairobi or, sure. or in Nigeria and Lagos. Yeah. Um, and, and the expectation is that they they and not the Kenyan government, you know, that, that the Kenyans and Nigerians can't do these things for themselves. They need these Western saviors mm. um, is incredibly pandering and, and disempowering and incorrect. Um, we witnessed this with with We Charity in a very literal way. You know, they they, um, they do good work uh, as well as everything that we're critical about. They they uh, have a hospital um, in Kenya, but that hospital is funded by uh, by the Kenyan government. And there's a sign outside of that hospital that says this hospital receives Kenyan government funding. Well, in We's promotional marketing materials, they erase that message attributing that funding to the Kenyan government and replaced it with We brand. So what does that tell you? You know, it, it seems to be necessary for organizations like we to literally erase the things that Kenyans do for themselves right, right. and instead replace that with signage that says we're the ones who are saving these people. Right. That's really troubling. That's yeah. really troubling. And people yeah. need to know about that. Right. There's so many things in this uh, series that people can uh, certainly learn about. You, you mentioned, uh, I think there a little bit earlier about uh, getting, getting comments from uh, former workers from the organization. Uh, there's uh, some comments from the former board of director and, and what happened when uh, he started raising questions about, about some of the the questionable way that funds were being uh, used, and he wanted to uh, to help us straighten some of that stuff out. And so, yeah, it really is a fascinating look at this whole situation. What what would you say, uh, just finishing up, uh, Jesse, about the the ultimate uh, goal that you hope that that this series does that people can uh, take away from this uh, and and get out of it. You know, uh, all of these ideas are really interesting and important to me, but I'm, I'm a journalist and, I, and, and I'm driven by curiosity. You know, mm. I, I, I got involved in the story, not because I wanted to preach to the world, but because right. I just wanted to know the truth. Sure. And uh, this family and this organization is fascinating to me. Mm. And we have uncovered things that nobody knew about beforehand, but there's still things that are going on that, that we're still digging into. So for me, I just I just want to tell a, a, a gripping story that I think speaks to the, the age that we live in and, and raises some serious issues and i just i i think that if people start listening to this you know their jaws are going to drop it's an astonishing story and um you know i i just want i just want people to hear it right well thank you and you know just before we go uh mentioning uh yourself as publisher and editor-in-chief of canada land tell us something about canada land itself we are uh, an independent news organization that is funded by the people who listen to us. And, you know, we've broken major national news stories again and again. Mm-hmm. And we, we put out, uh, you know, podcasts that talk about Canadian media and politics. And uh, you know, I, I think people should check out CanadaLand.com because we don't have enough independent media in Canada. Yep. We're one of the very few organizations that is doing so in a sustainable, profitable way, paying reporters to actually dig into things that nobody else is looking at. And, uh, you know, we, we work for our audience. Jesse, thank you so much. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Uh, congratulations on this uh, series. Congratulations on all the great work you guys are doing over there at Canada Land as well. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thanks for this conversation, David. It was lots of fun talking to you. All right. You take care. And I look forward to speaking with you again, perhaps on other topics.
Me too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's the publisher and editor-in-chief of Canada Land, Jesse Brown. We've been speaking to him about The White Saviors. It's a uh, five-episode series that you can catch on at the White Saviors website and or going to canadaland.com, as he mentioned, and uh, scroll down the page and you'll see that and all of the other great work that they're doing over there. I'm David Moses, your host here on Moment of Truth and Element FM, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.